In a world full of socio-political issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally, Sally Welcome Sally, Sally, to Sally, Sally, YDHTY, the podcast dedicated to ending the left-right, us-versus-them paradigm that is plaguing politics in America. Thank you for tuning in and being a part of the solution. If this is your first time here, welcome. And if you like what you hear in this episode, share it with one friend. You can also learn more about the one political reform that can end partisan vitriol in this country and make American democracy more responsive by visiting ydhty.com slash elections. Now, as I was putting together the past few episodes on critical race theory, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan was all over the headlines, and I started having some really interesting conversations on the subject to get the story. And I have four episodes coming up, this one being the first, that dive into America's involvement in the region, how it stacks up to prior foreign entanglements, and it draws an interesting through line between the mentality that led to the 9-11 attacks and the current problem of political extremism we're seeing in the United States today. I am very psyched for this series, and I hope you enjoy it. Now, to kick things off, I invited Banari Polk, Master Sergeant in the U.S. Army Reserves, and an old friend of mine from our days in Boston's stand-up comedy scene. And in between performing in front of Rooms Full of Drunks with yours truly, Banari served in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Guantanamo Bay, and he got to see the War on Terror play out firsthand. Now... If you want to hear about his time at Gitmo, check out the episode we recorded back in November of 2019 when YDHTY was just a mere little podling. Now, we recorded this episode a week or so following the withdrawal when things were still pretty raw, and Benari talks about his frustrations of seeing the war end as it did, and also gives some interesting insight into what drew him to serve in the first place. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. Yeah, I actually like to start off every episode with a random noise warning Mm -hmm. because my neighbor's lawn guy has this way of showing up whenever I'm recording. Like, and it and it, it it sounds like he is right outside my window on the recording. So I always like to give those disclaimers. Of course, my kids are coming in and out; they're making tons of noise. Today is the Today they're in school, so we're cool there. And you have a we're gonna we're gonna give a barking dog warning for you. So my dogs are barking. Your dogs. What kind of dog is it anyway? He's a golden doodle. Golden doodle. He's adorable. I did not know he's, they were barky dogs. Oh, he's the fluffiest, cuddliest dude. But man, when he sees a squirrel, oh yeah, he just wants to play with it. Do you think that's what they think? Is they're like mauling those things just? Or you think it's he's not a mauler he's a lover he doesn't know what to do he will he will corner like something i mean he'll bark at dogs across the street and then go up to them and then just like be like like he doesn't know what to do once he gets there he just knows he needs to get over to the thing that's got his attention and then and then he panics when he gets there and he's like i don't know what to do now yeah 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 that seems the way that seems the way so 
I don't want to totally steal your thunder, but I'm going to give a brief intro to you because you and I did an episode back in October of 2019. Oh, no, November of 2019. Excuse me. And it was a more general discussion of the military and the, you know, the, the role the U.S. military has played over the years. And to give folks a little of your background, Benari and I met when we were both doing stand up in Boston. And this would have been back in the early aughts, as they're called now. So like 2002 ish, maybe. Mm-hmm. And every now and then you would just disappear. So there'd be like, so I think, I think it was like your second disappearance, maybe that I realized you were like legit at like an undisclosed location. I think that uh-huh. was when you were, you were at Gitmo, I want to say you were down in, uh, down at Gitmo, which if you want to hear about Benari's experience at Gitmo, listen to that episode. I learned there's a McDonald's and it's very useful in uh, interrogating uh, potential assets, <laughs> cultivating relationships <laughs> with potential assets. And I also just want to give my standard disclaimer, which is uh, Please. My, my opinions and the opinions expressed on this podcast in no way reflect the opinions of the U.S. Army, the U.S. Army Reserve, the U.S. government, coalition partners, or anyone real or imagined. So that's that's the standard disclaimer there. <laughs> so you can all breathe easy. You can, <laughs> you can all, all breathe, breathe easy. easy. The DOD completely disavows any of this. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Glad we are. Which is which out. is my opinion and not an official opinion. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Very good. Wait, we got we got we, we checked all that off. And yeah, so you were serving in the armed forces. You were going abroad, mm-hmm. and you know the reason I asked you back on is. Obviously, we have withdrawn from Afghanistan, and you have been—you are one of the few people I know who's actually spent some time there. How many deployments did you have over in Afghanistan? I have one. I have three deployments total: Gitmo, Iraq, okay. and Afghanistan. So I hit the trifecta. Um, oh wow! And uh, I, you know, it's interesting because my stand-up career—the military was sort of my backup right i was like i'm gonna join the reserves because i want to give back a little bit but my full-time career is going to be comedy and 9-11 happened immediately so but my so really my comedy career and my military career started around the same time and then just wildly diverged and the military really overtook all of that uh <laughs> and was not intended to be a a 20 plus year career in in the military (laughs) yeah i mean if we go back to the time you made this decision it actually made a ton of sense because it didn't look like we were going to be involved in any long foreign entanglements right as you remember it was the late 90s so i got out of college in 99 i'm like i will start staying i will uh you know i was doing sketch and improv all through college and i was doing it at the studio and I was like, oh, yeah. this stand-up looks fun. So I will both start a stand-up career and I will join the U.S. Army Reserve. <laughs> it's it's yeah. like June of 99, same same, same time. Which first off, I don't know many people, I, I don't know, I, I mean, I didn't know this about you. I don't know many people who choose the military as their fallback. Uh, yeah, well, I don't even know if it was a fallback. It was, so this is really interesting because I don't think I realized this as much until I watched the woodstock 99 documentary oh yeah but coming out of college i had this feeling of like i didn't like a lot of this weird entitlement and this privilege that was coming out and this to me at that time this unjustified anger at stuff 
and I felt like we had started with there was like Smashing Pumpkins and STP and Pearl Jam and and Radiohead and Nirvana, and somehow that shifted into Limp Biscuit and Puddle of Mud and these this this sort of like knockoff <laughs> white guy angry grunge thing that was like I'm mad about nothing and just yelly and I don't really know why you're so pissed because we have Starbucks everywhere but I guess that's important that we I don't know like I guess that pisses you off and anyway there was all this this like it's not the bubble per se but I just saw myself as coming from this very fortunate background in this privileged background I went to a good expensive school and I lived in at the time I lived in Massachusetts and I was doing comedy in Cambridge and I was like you know I need to give back a little bit I I also felt like I'm there's a whole other world out there people don't have these same opportunities and I I really believe I believed and I believe in universal service and I felt like we're not doing enough to cultivate sort of a shared experience and that people in this country don't have the same experiences and I wanted to broaden my mind. I wanted to give back. And I thought this was a good way to sort of balance things out. There's something you said there, too, that I've been thinking about a lot in relation to current events. But I think it also bleeds back into around the time you enlisted and around the time of the start of the war on terror. Because it, one of the things I, I noted about the 9-11 hijackers. And mm -hmm. one of the things I noted about Osama bin Laden and a lot of the people who were ultimately responsible for 9-11 and ultimately responsible for this long 20-year engagement we've had in the region, or at least ultimately a catalyst for it, they they were comfortable. Yeah. You know, they weren't, they they were alienated, yes, but the story we often talk about is how Things like uh, poverty and political oppression and so on, how mm -hmm. these things breed terrorism. But and and yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sure it's true. But the, but the other side of it is getting back to this like angry man thing, right? These guys, out of all the people in the region, these people probably had the least to be angry about. Right. This this the Saudis, the people who backed it. Right. The Saudis, Pakistan the the money involved right and the money behind propping up al-qaeda at the time the money behind the taliban these very wealthy we would call them elites right and i think there's a lot of parallels i think there's a lot of parallels um to let's say current events in this country in terms of the myth of the of the angry forgotten class Versus the reality of how forgotten is that class? Because I see all those people. I we talk all the time about well, the middle class is being left behind, and and the the burden of the white man. And guess what? Those white guys are never actually without a job. We made so all these movies about these guys losing their jobs at the factories, and first it was the Japanese were coming and taking away your jobs, and then like later it was some other group coming in and taking away your job. But there was always this fear that white guys weren't going to be able to get jobs they wanted. But, like, they never really suffered for it. But there was always that fear of, like, but what happens? But Joe the Plumber had, like, four different jobs. And was what we, what we overlook is the fact that it's not the job per se. Job markets change, right? People lose jobs all the time and have to get new jobs. It's access to funding. It's access to money. Those guys who lost a job could walk into a bank and get a loan 
and start a new business. And not everyone has that opportunity. And and I think what we're looking at is, I hate, I hate to say this, but there's a lot of money in terrorism. There is a lot of money. People make a lot of money in keeping groups of people angry and funding them to stay angry and to go do things on behalf of causing some sort of whether it's chaos or whether it's to or whether it's just to overthrow governments like the Taliban came back in. Right. And they overtook a very well-funded, well-trained army in a matter of weeks. And, and that's what that's what happened in Afghanistan. You know, we spent 20 years arming and training and funding a military force with 300,000 or more troops. And for whatever reason, whether it was skill or whether they were paid off or whether they just didn't really believe in the cause, they weren't able to hold back the Taliban who overtook them. And and what I think people really forget in the, the quick collapse of the Afghan government was the Taliban takeover of Kabul happened because the president of Afghanistan fled. He just in the middle of the night fled, and that was the end. Maybe it could have gone on for more weeks or months. Maybe they could have held them back. Maybe there could have been a sustained effort because they were in the middle of a civil war and whatever the circumstances were. What we do know is the president, the head of the government of Afghanistan fled the country. And once that happens, that's it. Anyone who's working for or fighting for that guy was no longer was no longer viable. There was no longer viable defense. And so they have to look at on the ground, well, who's who's where's the money coming from and where's my safety and security coming from? Well, meet the new boss. Now we work for now we work for these new bosses. So when were you there and and how long were you there for? I was in Afghanistan for a year. I got to Afghanistan very shortly after we killed Osama bin Laden. And okay. early early on I was with the logistics unit and early on our primary mission was in um it was in draw, the drawdown of the military presence there um and a a peaceful handoff to the Afghan army and to the Afghan government and also working with our coalition partners on humanitarian efforts and and then the biggest question is what do we do with our equipment uh where do we get it do we what are we bringing back what are we leaving behind and how do we get that to places where it can be the most useful so like medical equipment okay we're helping with hospitals on the ground and school supplies things like that vehicles what are we giving to the afghan army uh that we're just leaving behind and they'll they'll and we're training them on that um what are we bring to other places what are what are the what's the equipment that we're bringing back to the u.s all that sort of logistical thing and that started in 2000 2011 so that's in 2011 and i so i had an interesting experience because when i got there we were still part of this sort of international coalition i i was at kandahar airfield which was a nato base at that time and we had uh, we were working with the canadians we had a tim hortons on the base um, we had, uh, there was a, there was a full, you know, there was a, there was a boardwalk with, with, with little shops and there was, uh, but we had the British there. We had the Romanians, we had the Australians, New Zealand was there. The UAE was there. Uh, all the, the French were there. And over that time, the Canadians left, the British downsized, uh, the French left, uh, Romanians left. Like our coalition partners were like, we killed bin Laden. This is the end of the war. Goodbye. And increasingly over the course of my deployment it was the the brunt of the 
security and the operations on the ground were were being done by the U.S. And we took on a much greater responsibility during that time. And I know people say, well, after killing bin Laden, that was the time to leave. And there's a lot of other countries felt that way and just left. So a lot of our coalition partners finished up their missions and left. Why didn't so why didn't we leave then? Well, I don't. That's above my pay grade, as they say. I have you weren't you were part of that decision. You weren't part of that <laughs> I, wasn't, process. I wasn't sitting in the room for some reason. Uh, but I will say this: we had just ended the war in Iraq. ISIS hadn't hadn't erupted in Syria and Iraq at that point, so we had already handed over Iraq to the Iraqi government, which was a fairly viable government still at that time, even though people had uh, had issues with the abrupt ending of the Iraq war. So one war had ended, and Afghanistan was still going on. We were coming up on the, the 10th anniversary of 9-11 at that time, and it was a great money train. There was a lot of, a lot of contractors were getting paid. Uh, for every, I, I think there was like one contractor for every like three service members, uh, something like that. So, and, and it was great. Like the military, they had a war. As long as, as long as we were doing operations to maintain the war, we needed to maintain the war so we could continue operations. Uh, and so that just, there's just a lot of money and there's expenditures and there's a supplementary defense spending bill every six months that they would vote on that was separate from the budget itself. So how did we spend trillions of dollars? Well, like every six months we were passing supplemental funding bills, billions of dollars worth. So there's partially a lot of people were making money, so that's always a good reason to keep something going. But number two, there was a lot of advice being given to the president at that time, which was Barack Obama, from the military leaders, but also the Afghan partners saying, we just need a little bit more time to secure things here on the ground. We just need a little more. We just need a little more time. If we get a little extra time, we can ensure that the Taliban won't take over because at that time, the Taliban had already made their their presence known again and was already uh, we already had to sit down at the table with them. But, you know, as far back as 2011, we were already on some level, whether they were official channels or unofficial channels, we were they, there was never a point in which the Taliban wasn't going to be part of the negotiating process about what happened with the future of Afghanistan. Pakistan, you know, Pakistan was in the mix as well. They weren't happy with us because we killed Osama bin Laden on their sovereign territory. Um, but they were also harboring Osama bin Laden. So, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so we had some issues to work out as well. And we had negotiations. There was, a, there was a sea change in terms of political leadership with our coalition partners. And so, you know, there was what was the NATO mission. So there was a lot of discussions happening. And I think that the sense was we broke it. We bought it. We, we if we just up and leave Afghanistan to to whatever turmoil is probably going to come, that's on us. And we didn't I don't think we wanted to necessarily do that. But if there was ever a time to cleanly, I don't know if there's a clean way to end a war, but if there's a clean ending to this particular war, that was the moment. And so I'm curious. Yeah, I know you're you had maybe a limited vantage point or a limited view of the country as a whole, but. Based on the time you spent in Iraq and based on the time you spent in Afghanistan, were there any perceptible differences? Oh, huge. Huge. The, the, the Iraq had... Iraq already had an infrastructure in place. Iraq, Iraq could be a 20th, 21st century country if 
if you know with the right circumstances they also had they had the tigers and the euphrates they had areas that, they're not just a desert some areas are are desert but then they have lush green areas with rich with vegetation and growth um they have uh they had buildings <laughs> they had they had uh, but they had uh they already had an infrastructure where like roads and bridges and electricity and capabilities and the populace as a whole was just better educated in afghanistan you were dealing with a place that by design because of because of a number of circumstances uh mainly due to the warlords who ran that country you had a population that was already involved in local infighting you had the dari and the pashtu so depending on where you were in afghanistan you either spoke dari or you spoke pashtu and they did not get along they did not they 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 were polar opposites and and one did not like the other and then there were words in pashtu that would mean the opposite thing in dari as well so just even the language itself even the languages itself on the ground were in conflict with each other uh so <laughs> like bizarro pashtun yeah you're also dealing with uh and you're also dealing with a desert on top of a mountain in a landlocked country that has no natural resources of value other than opium we tried to we tried to get agricultural uh we, we tried to get a thriving agricultural operation off the ground it was too expensive because there were there were very few roads i think there's like two or three main roads that run through the country and and those required security because that's what you would bomb so it's very easy to blow up places on these roads because there are so few of them but that's the main way you can ship anything there's there's no ocean there's no, you have no port you have no rivers you have no ports to to ship something by by water uh or you could fly something in but very few landing airports you had like bagram you had kandahar and you had kabul other than that, it had to be by helicopter, and all of those, that's a very expensive way to ship something. So to, the only real thing that made money was opium. That's why it became so integral to the drug trade there, was because of the poppies, because they had the poppies. And it needed to be, it needed to make money. It, it needed to be worth the cost of shipping. And then, and then you just have an area, too, that's always been between, you know, they've always sort of been a pawn and whether whether it was between Pakistan and India, whether it was between other regional infighting, whether it was between the Soviets coming in, whether it was the British, the French who tried. But it, Afghanistan goes all the way back to Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great conquered Persia in six months. It took Alexander the Great's army three years to secure Afghanistan. And then he died and they couldn't hold it. So Afghan so historically speaking, Afghanistan was never <laughs> was never a cool place to try and take over. Yeah, it's like one of those uh cursed monkeys paws or something like that. Yeah, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So what when you were there, like what was the mission? So you mentioned you mentioned you know, Osama bin Laden's killed, coalition partners are pulling up stakes, they're taking their Tim Hortons and they're they're going home. <laughs> Um, so, so you, so after these folks leave, what was the mission? Like, what was the, what was your purpose there? What was the purpose of the folks there? Well, like I said, we were engaged in a lot of humanitarian missions. Um, we were engaged in a lot of civil affairs missions and then as logistics, getting equipment to where it needed to go. We opened up hospitals, you know, we helped the local police stations, schools. We opened up a school, um, in one area, three separate times while I was there, same school. 
we opened it three times. Um, <laughs> so there was also a little bit of the uh, <laughs> there was also a little bit of the Groundhog Day element of uh, is are we are we making a difference? <laughs> is this helpful? So if, explain if, this to me. Why did you have to open it three times? Because it would you know we'd open it. There'd be a big to do, and then either violence would erupt or it it just wouldn't be able to sustain itself and so then we'd come back put some more resources in it try again got it uh and then you know you're also talking about um an area that is sparse when it comes to actual hard buildings and structures you know and and i you know i always say like i i landed at at kandahar airfield and i'm like this place is a shithole and then i would travel to like outside and i'd go to units that were just you know surrounded by sandbags on the side of a mountain uh pulling security 24 7 and they're just out in the open and they got tents and sandbags and i'd be like i gotta get back to i gotta get back to calf that, that place was nice <laughs> you know uh we we had buildings we i had i had a building uh we had we had some hard structures so and then it would snow and it would rain it would be muddy but it would also be oppressively hot so like iraq if it was hot it it was a dry heat as everyone says so it could be like 125 well in afghanistan it could get up to like 120 but it was also humid and so it was like, so it's, 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 it's landlocked and humid and, and hot. humid and hot but then it would rain and snow and you have mountains and there's, it's just not very friendly in general. The climate isn't friendly. The terrain isn't friendly. And depending on the people, they could also not be friendly. Look, when I was there, there were two Jews left in Afghanistan. And there was like this old bombed out synagogue that they uh, lived near and they fought over it. And the two Jews that were left in Afghanistan hated each other. And just fought. They did not, they, they didn't speak. And when they did, it was just fighting. So to me, that's a perfect encapsulation of, of what it was like to try and manage anything in Afghanistan. Like, two, the only two Jews who were left there don't even yeah. like each other. Like, you know, so, so this idea that America could come in and completely change a mindset, impose our will on this area impose the impose ideals that weren't necessarily anything that they even wanted like we never really sat down and said hey what do you guys want yeah you know what they wanted was our presence our security and our money yeah and that was great and everybody got along but like in terms of democratic ideals and building up a, a brand new country out of this uh, and and changing hearts and minds that's a big ask. And that's not something the U.S. military, like the force and full might of the U.S. military, necessarily equipped for. Or, or good for. Forty percent, folks. That's the number of people in America who don't identify with either major party. Bigger than either of them in terms of voters. 60% is the number of Americans who feel another major party is needed. Both are a signal something's wrong, and both are a signal Americans are looking for something more, and that is why you listen to You Don't Have to Yell. Now, nothing's going to change 
until we open up the two-party system to real political competition. And in the right numbers, we can make this happen. So here are two ways you can help. Number one, if you dig the content on YDHTY and you know someone else who would, please share this show with them. The goal of YDHTY is not just to push for electoral reform, but to get the center back into the conversation. And this podcast grows by word of mouth. Number two, if you want to take action in your state, visit rankthevote.us. It's an organization focused on growing the rank choice voting movement in all 50 states. And while there are no shortages of ways to reform elections in this country, rank choice voting is by far the most practical and effective way to make elected officials accountable to the majority of voters, not just the parties. 2020 is going to be a decade of change, and I hope you'll choose to join me in making the change for the better. And now, back to the episode. So you came back in 2012 then, is that right? Yeah, I came back in July of 2012. Okay, and so for like the last eight, nine years, you've been seeing this war go on, right? And it's almost been, you know, it's almost been an afterthought in a lot of ways, as you as you've watched this war over the years, as you've watched like the coverage, what what were you thinking during that time? Like, what were your thoughts on it? Well, I mean, you want to talk about justified anger versus like unearned anger of yes, you know the you know there was I, look and and I don't speak for all veterans, but I can speak for myself. There's a lot of frustration and anger, being that like any any veteran who comes back from any of these wars comes back to a country that most of the country doesn't even know realize or acknowledge that we've been at war for 20 years and your experiences are so foreign to the people in this country that's your country that's your home you know we have less than one percent of the population is 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 part of the military you know our military is made up of less than one percent of the u.s population that's a huge divide when you don't have a shared experience with 99 percent of your fellow citizens and and the experiences you get are, are going to be so wildly different because, you know, you can have this idealistic view of, oh, if we go over there, we just do if we just do A, B and C, we can fix it. And I think we definitely as Americans have this like we can fix it mentality. But there's some things that we can help, we can support, we can guide. But like there was something very true about George W. Bush as the candidate in 2000 saying, like, we shouldn't be the world police. We're not nation builders and unfortunately president george w bush ignored candidate george w bush's rhetoric because that's exactly what george w bush committed us to his administration committed us to being the world police and nation builders and that's a huge task and a huge undertaking for any country but especially a country that relies on a military that's all volunteer yeah, because the burden is being placed on the same people, and a lot of these people cycle through. I had three deployments. There are plenty of uh, men and women that I serve with that went through three or four or five deployments, and some, you know, we would call them deployment rats. You know, that that's just what they knew. They were used to it. They they would just look for the next deployment and just keep keep going because that's 
that was that was a steady job for them, but they were good at it. They, they felt that they could uh, make the most difference. Well, and and I do think that, and this is something we talked about too in the 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 last episode we did together. But there's there is a lack of shared sacrifice in this country due to the way we fund wars and due to the way we staff the military. Right. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can't look. You can't help but draw comparisons between Vietnam and Afghanistan at this point. And I, I think the the thing that I found odd about the, the response to both wars is if you look at Vietnam, public opinion was against it. People were drafted into it. So people were forced into it. And when those people came back, they were spit on. Right. Like there was there was nobody had a yellow ribbon bumper sticker right? They were reviled for fighting in a war that they didn't even want to go to in the first place. And now we have this sort of performative patriotism mm -hmm. where as long as you're standing for the national anthem at a football game and, you know, have the right bumper sticker on your car, you're supporting the troops, right? Right. But you, your lifestyle is entirely unimpacted. Your kids are not going to be drawn into that war. Right. And that was... That was the check on sustained wars was people were supposed to be impacted because that's that's supposed to be the mechanism that brings an end to a war. When the majority of the country doesn't want to fight it anymore, they say we're not sending our kids, we're not sending our sons and daughters and our fathers and our mothers and our brothers and our sisters anymore to this war that we don't want to fight. But that mechanism is gone now. We don't have that mechanism. So you can fight uh, an unpopular war for as long as you want, which we've just sort of proven. We have a 20-year war, and I don't know what the you know how far back the polls go in terms of the popularity of it. It was a very popular war at the beginning when we went in. We had very clear goals. Root out, uh, root out the terrorist cells. Uh, make sure that it can't become a... Make sure that Afghanistan can't become a, a haven for terrorists anymore, and, and kill Osama bin Laden. Those objectives were met in 2011, and when President Biden says that, he, he is correct. Those... The objectives for the reasons why we went in to Afghanistan in the first place were met. So then the question becomes, well, why did we stay? And the real answer is because we could. Because there was nothing, there was no, there was no consequence to not staying. There weren't going to be protests in the streets because most people didn't even know anyone who was fighting in the war. And we didn't deal with any supply shortages. We didn't deal with any tax hikes. Nope. We did not feel one bit of discomfort. Right. or anything going on and i'm still trying to figure out which is worse <laughs> like right like right. was the performative patriotism of 2020 any better than what happened at the end of vietnam well I, and i and i want to say I, I, I sort of want to make two points here one i was very fortunate in that i didn't have to go through what the vietnam era veterans had to go through on their return we we've been we were and have been overall treated much better by this country. Partly it's because people don't know how to deal with us. They just they just say thank you, pat us on the back, or they buy us a you know, donut or something uh, when they see us. And that's that's lovely, and however people can, can deal with it or, or re relate to it, it is appreciated that at least the default in this country is to not take it out on the warriors asked to fight in the war so we didn't have to deal with that but i think the end of afghanistan actually signals a huge shift and i think that 
the last week or two, I have, I think, I think you're seeing a lot of veterans feel the same anger as those Vietnam era veterans of, especially of the what were we doing there? What was this even for? Why, why did I give up all these years of my life? Why was my family impacted? And then there's some resentment of like, none of you were asked to do anything. We shouldered this on our backs. And now there's a lot of performative outrage over, oh, we got, you know, how we got, it's not that we ended the war, it's how we ended the war. And it's like, what did you have to do with any of this? You weren't part of the decision making at any point. You didn't even bring it up in campaigns when people were running we've been through four presidents with this war and and none of you really cared about this war the the washington post published the report on afghanistan that was the equivalent of the pentagon papers about the corruption and the 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 endless uh quagmire of what's become afghanistan and no one said anything about that that was two or three years ago that was published and no one it didn't have any it had made zero impact on people. And then we have soldiers who on the ground, even if they felt like, what are we doing here? Or are we here in a mission that sole purpose is to sustain the mission here? Because there was, I think, an element of that. There were a lot of things on the ground in Afghanistan that, that people fought and worked really hard for, ensuring that women had better rights and access to education and, and the ability to work in career fields and had protection and safety. That was a huge, huge effort um, that the U.S. forces were instrumental in bringing to Afghanistan and and opening that up, as well as just um, helping provide an art scene because the Taliban's anti-arts. And I know that it's it can seem like that that is arbitrary or, you know, well, what's the point of an arts community? But like Taliban's going to come in and all those artists are going to be shut down and might be in fear of their lives. And then finally, of course, we have all of the interpreters, and not just the interpreters, any any Afghan citizen who worked with us or worked closely with us, any any of those Afghan citizens who whose lives are now at stake and and at risk. And it's extraordinary that we got a hundred and twenty thousand people out in the time frame that we did. That is that is the largest mass evacuation I think in the history of the, the country. No evac. I mean we. We only, the end of Vietnam saw an evacuation of like a few thousand people. And uh, we weren't getting the Vietnamese uh, allies out like we did in Afghanistan. So yes, there are people left behind and we have a lot more work to do. But in terms of what we were able to accomplish with the evacuation, as messy and as chaotic as it was, is a huge feat to the military on the ground. The, 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 and, and just that particular mission overall was a success um and 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 now there's a lot more to do but well i mean and look like every armchair quarterback on tv had a better idea as to how to do it but the thing i have to wonder is like you know biden had the entire pentagon at his disposal i'd imagine they maybe spitballed a couple of the ideas you were hearing on tv here and there you know right. so yeah i, I think though there. There's something I want to get back to, something you said. You you mentioned how the vets are, are kind of dealing with the anger of, of the war now. And you don't get the freedom to do that when you're deployed, do you? You don't get the freedom to question the mission. No, and and, and you do the mission to the best of your ability. You know, I always took it, uh, my whatever mission I was on, I had the mindset that 
I will try and make my little corner of the world as better than I found it. That's that's the primary mission. Is can I leave this a little bit better than I found it? And if I adhere to that, I could be, uh, I I could sleep at night. And I and I think a lot of troops felt that way. You know, I I did. It's not just it's not doing your job or following orders. It's can I do something positive? Can I have a positive influence here for the time that I'm here? Can I make some sort of difference? And I think even even knowing that the that Afghanistan as a country is doomed to going back to whatever it was before we got there, knowing sort of the futility of that is one thing, but seeing it happen and having to deal with the reality of it is a lot different. You know, I I could see the futility in some things ten years ago. But now the reality of the collapse of the Afghan government, which we work so hard to maintain and sustain, it's difficult. It's difficult to process that. And I don't I don't know who you're supposed to blame. Am I supposed to blame President Biden for, for finally ending it? Am I supposed to blame President Trump for for the actual abrupt end to the war, which is which is what was set in motion for the negotiation with the Taliban and freeing thousands of Taliban fighters who have been imprisoned? Am I supposed to blame Barack Obama for not ending the war after we killed Osama bin Laden? Am I supposed to blame Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, and George W. Bush, who were the architects of this particular war? Because what we're seeing of the long-term ramifications of what they of what they started. So am I supposed to be mad at all of them? Am I supposed to be mad at none of them? It's very difficult to process because it takes a tremendous amount of introspection context and an understanding of history and also an understanding of reality and these are not things that in general human beings are very good at uh, processing do you know in between when we spoke last and now you know, my wife and i took in two foster kids there was there were two girls in our town they were in a bad situation they needed a place and we figured we could keep them in the school district where people who knew them could keep an eye over them. You know, these kids had bounced around throughout their lives and you go in with the best of intentions and then you realize things are just too fucked up for you to like, for you to do anything with. And you're left with a number of bad choices you're left with nothing but bad options and you've just got to figure out how can I best possibly direct this situation? Right. You know, and it doesn't change, you know, I'm not, look, I'm not trying to conflate what I do, you know, my feelings about this with your feelings about. No, but it's such an interesting parallel because we can talk about, oh, it's a bad situation, but what you're talking about and what I'm talking about and what we're dealing with with Afghanistan is we're talking about human beings, right? Because we're not talking about the abstract of just a mission. The The feeling that the veterans are feeling and the feeling that a lot of people are feeling is that we've let human beings down and that because of decisions that were made before us and because of circumstances that are out of control, we can only manage this disaster we can't fix it or avoid it and it's very difficult to try and make sense of that because 
we also want to believe, well, if I just try hard enough, or if I just try harder, or what more can I do? Because we're dealing with human beings here, and hu- and lives, and and maybe there was nothing we could do, but damn it, we tried, and we will maybe hopefully try again because what else is there uh, you know uh, maybe maybe it comes down to better to have tried and failed than to have never tried at all oh uh look i i was i think about those girls every day and i still there i still have zero regrets about what we did and you know i think this kind of goes back to something you we started this conversation with which is yeah, the the sort of cultural emptiness that got you into the military in the first place, and, and <laughs> you know, and yeah. and part of the part of the thing that part of the thing that spurred actually my thought on Osama bin Laden and the nine eleven hijackers was I read a story about how uh, there was a woman who just was recently sentenced to jail for her role in storming the Capitol. So she was one of right. the folks who breached the Capitol. Right, flew to Washington on a private jet. Right, very well funded. You, <laughs> yes, exactly. So who very comfortable, very comfortable, not somebody ground to a nub by globalization who had enough, you know, not somebody who had any reason to complain. I mean, she couldn't even complain about the TSA. You know, she flew on her own goddamn plane. And yet with all that, she was still angry enough to do what she did. And right. and 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 I and I see a reflection of that in the in the folks who planned and executed the 9/11 attacks and even to an extent ISIS and the people who are funding a lot of what's going on in Afghanistan because in the end it's about where's the money coming from it's always it's always about the money and it's about who has the money to fund an operation like this and then the money to put in place an infrastructure that could coordinate something like this. And I look, I think about I think about the insurrection at the Capitol all the time. I honestly believe had someone like Dick Cheney been in charge, it would have been successful. I mean, honestly, it was only incompetence that that led to it being <laughs> yeah. unsuccessful. Yeah. Because when you look at it, right, the plan itself, the plan itself is a flawless act of uh, uh of overtaking the government you had the one time when all branches of government are in one place you have the entire legislature the senate and the congress gathered in one singular place with the vice president there a coordinated attack could have taken out the vice president which is second in line the Speaker of the House, third in line, and then the oldest member of the Senate, who's next in line, which would then have led to a total collapse of the government because the next person in line would have been Secretary Pompeo, who was with the president. So there's your coup. Like, that is, barring anything else, if they had just been a little uh, a little bit smarter at the top, and it worked, it would have worked. And then what we would we have done? And now your dog's barking again. And now my dog's barking because my dog yeah. knows. <laughs> yes, exactly. But no, I think it, I, I've, I've said this a, 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 a bunch of times before on this podcast, which is, and 
people can disagree with me. I think Trump really wrote the book for a more competent autocrat. Yes, and, and has did the did the test run, and if a more competent autocrat comes in, all they have to do is fall in because they know everyone will get in line behind a strongman. And it's very terrifying to see uh, how much American citizens who scream about loving freedom love love an autocrat. They love dictatorships. They love taking rights away from other people. They love, you know, it seems like all these people who love freedom do not like what a free society looks and feels like. You know, getting back to like the the respect you get serving in the military. There there is definitely, I think in this country there's definitely an appeal to 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 physical strength. There's definitely an appeal to kind of force, you know, in this country. I'm not saying that's the only reason that there's a lot of respect for the military, but but that's that's kind of part of our culture. And, you know, an interesting thing that I kind of came to mind to me a couple of days ago was, you know, if you have a really rough neighborhood out there, right, and there are cops going out on the beat every day risking their lives, they get the ultimate salute, right? If you're a teacher, you're failing. You've failed the school. You are not somebody who shows up in a rough gig every day and does what they can for modest pay to improve a situation. Mm-hmm. You're failing. You are failing the school right. in popular vernacular. Um, and, and I do think there's something about our culture that really idolizes that, that strong man or, or idolizes that figure. Maybe it's from our movies. I don't know. And I, and I also think that there's no value to quality of life in this country, which is so bizarre to me. True. Because it doesn't yeah. need to be this hard. The amount of money that we have and the amount of money we spend on things, we should – for the amount of money we spend in the healthcare system, and this is correct. People are correct to be angry about how much money we spend in the healthcare system because it should be better for what we spend. We spend more money than any other country, and we don't have a lot of the benefits that other countries do that are more – whether you call it socialized or – or um, government men- maintained, or whatever it is, we could have better access to healthcare. We could have a better system. We choose not to at every turn. We choose the more difficult path. You know, I was in, uh, I did a, a comedy tour. I was in Japan uh, for a little bit. And the way that they do city planning is incredible because whenever there's a new construction project, there's a thought to, the balance of the city and the makeup of the city and where things are put and how this affects the people there. And so certain areas are for agriculture and, uh, and space and, and then other areas are for buildings and it's all carefully thought out and planned because they want to, uh, establish a quality of life for the people in the way that the, the way the public transit system works, right? It's very efficient. There's a lot of money put into it, but it's also run in an orderly way. And there's professionalism and and money behind ensuring that it is well-run and well-maintained. Because that improves the quality of life of every single citizen there. Here, we look at public transportation as that's for poor people, so who cares? Well, yeah. And there's, you know, as I listen to what you say, and I'm processing everything I've heard, you know, it's kind of funny. Like, I look at the war on terror, and I almost feel like it was two cultures— basically driven mad by their own i don't want to call it hollowness Mm -hmm. but by their own weaknesses right Mm -hmm. and and just inevitably collided into each other like 
we are a culture that is based on rugged individualism and with that and self-reliance and with that comes a huge amount of anxiety mm -hmm. uh, and with that comes a, a reluctance to look for help. And on the other side, you have, I mean, I don't want to make any assumptions about Middle Eastern culture. My knowledge is, let's say, moderate to low on, on, on how they work. But, you know, I would say that when I look at this, when I look at this, the, the record on human rights, when I look at the record on gender equality, a whole number of things, you know, there's a, there's a, there seems to be a whole lot of legacy wiring from centuries prior that's kind of working its way out. And I wonder if the two of us just happen to be two bad actors or, or two folks in a bad spot who just happen to inevitably collide. Now I'm rambling, but. No, I mean, I think that there's a huge element of, um, <laughs> of that. Uh, because of course this was going to collide, but then you have to look at the narrative that was created around the collision and whether that narrative is true. Did we get attacked because they hate us for our freedoms? Is that why we were attacked? Were we attacked because of our involvement with funding and then abandoning uh, freedom fighters who fought against the Soviets? Were we attacked because of decades of decades going back to the 40s of uh, foreign policy uh, intervention, uh, whether it was overt or, or CIA involved and covert? Was it some combination of all these things? Or was it just that we were there and, and we let our guard down? and made ourselves susceptible to the kind of attack that someone looking to make a name for themselves on the world stage and show their strength, like, did it have anything to do with us? Or was it that you had a, uh, a well-funded government in a dangerous area who wanted to be uh, the big boss of that area and show how strong they were by giving a black eye to the most powerful country on earth? And, and knew that they could do it because we weren't paying attention and could sucker punch us. And did. And that it had really nothing else to do with us except for them to show how strong they were. And, and now, 20 years later, did that work? Did they, did they prove their point <laughs> and say, look what, we, look what we made them do. Look what, look what this backwater, insignificant caveman uh, mentality did to the big bad 21st century world power i don't i don't know the answer to that but but it but it is worth i guess asking the question of you know did we get ropadoped into into something that had very little were we pawns in someone else's <laughs> uh uh strategic game of of risk i i certainly see a list of people who benefited from this and none of them are us so you know i always like to end with some call to action with something folks can do to positively impact the state of affairs 
this is going to seem very naive for asking, but right now you've got a bunch of folks who have either returned home or been home and served over there. You know, they're dealing with how everything went down. Is there anything your ordinary average folk can do to help? Sure. I I would say, number one, you're going to have a lot of veterans who are, who are dealing with very complicated, complex issues that they've been dealing with for 20 plus years. And what I would say is don't reach out in the like way in which it's some sort of charity like you're helping a homeless person. Sometimes you just need someone to listen to. Maybe Sometimes they just need to be treated like a normal human being and have like a normal trip to the beach and just have fun or go watch a Marvel movie and whatever. Um, so there's lots of different ways to help veterans. But I would also say please help your neighbors. We're still in the middle of a global pandemic. Donating to the food banks. People need to eat. That that's that never goes out of style. And I would say treating every every person with respect and dignity. Try not to get into fights with people over whether they wear a mask or not. You don't want to wear a mask, but someone's wearing a mask. Like You don't need to be screaming at each other. I would prefer if you wear a mask for, for protection, to protect you and others. I'd prefer you get vaccinated, but if you choose not to, just don't be a dick about things, you know? Um, be responsible. And then lastly, I would say, I don't, I don't, I, I would say something that, uh, I don't know that would happen if we didn't have the crises, but we're taking in a lot of refugees. We're taking in refugees that have landed at now Fort Lee, Fort McCoy, but there's going to be a lot of Afghan refugees here and, and with, with countries around the world in our communities in America, try and be welcoming. They've just come from some horrific, traumatic, catastrophic events and and we know we know what it's like to go through traumatic events so uh, my appeal i guess is for humanity and for um understanding and for being good neighbors in whichever way so if there are refugees in your area any way you can help whether it's through relocation or sponsorship or just helping out with donations that would be terrific um there are veterans in your community any way you can help out whether it's just through friendship or, or donations, or or getting involved in uh, in those local organizations, that would be terrific. And if you don't have veterans or refugees in your neighborhood, just be a good neighbor to each other. We we are in this together. We have to learn to live together. Uh, and and it's not just a question of like, well, I'm a morning riser and 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 they're up all night. It's it's more than that. We need we need more than ever. I think dignity and respect in our conversations, but in our actions, most importantly, in our actions. I like it. Don't make the country you served for any worse. <laughs> Please try and make it better than make it better than we found it. Yeah, but I think there's there if there's a common thread I'm I'm seeing in all this and that get, get this kind of gets into everything we're, we're, we've talked about. But a lot of these a lot of the issues we've discussed have generated from a lack of purpose or from a need for purpose. And sometimes your purpose is just as simple as like not being a dick. <laughs> yeah, that's a great purpose. If nothing else, your purpose can be, I wasn't a dick that day. And that's a great purpose. All right, America, <laughs> you have your mission. Don't be a dick. <laughs> Don't be a dick. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Benari. And if you did, consider leaving it a review as it helps me get the word out to more weirdos such as yourself. 
Now you can connect with Benari, the man himself, direct on Twitter, at Benari Lee. That is B-E-N-A-R-I-L-E-E. He is easy to get in touch with and easy to get along with. Now there are two big themes that came out of this conversation that I'm going to be exploring in the next couple of episodes. And, you know, the first one, and probably most striking to me, is the concept of purpose. Now, Benari saw a culture devoid of purpose, and it prompted him to enlist in the late 90s. And you could argue that the people who started the war on terror by planning and carrying out the 9-11 attacks found the same purpose in violence. And we're seeing the same phenomenon play out in instances of political violence in America today. And the big question I ask is, why is it that otherwise comfortable people seek purpose in extremism. Now, the second is that no one talked about the war in Afghanistan until we left. Cable news actually dedicated more airtime to the region in the last few weeks than it had in the five years prior to that. And the idea that Americans prefer an eternal foreign entanglement over the perception of losing a war is something that is surprisingly consistent in our country's history, and that is something we will learn about in our next episode. As always, music, courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's editorial advisor is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye.